You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, I'll be getting some other people to talk about Doctor Who, so I don't have to. I'm JR, and uh, this weekend it was the Exeter University Doctor Who Society's Minicon 2017. So what you will be hearing coming up will be, first of all, the Dalek panel, with the Dalek operators Nicholas Pegg, Barnaby Edwards, and Dan Barrett, who are always a lot of fun, so I think you'll probably enjoy that. Uh, Following that, there'll be a short interview with one of the other guests, Annika Wills, followed by Joe Lidster, and then finally a short interview with Rob Shearman, all guests at the Exeter University's Minicon. So uh, thanks to the blessing of organiser Evan Jones, I've been able to uh, bring you these interviews in this panel. Um, One more thing before I go, the music that you'll be hearing at the start and the end this week is... uh, an arrangement by Marcus Nash, a friend of Lee's, uh, that will be becoming our regular arrangement sometime later this year, but that I was enjoying so much I thought I'd bug it on this week as a kind of a preview. Anyway, that's all from me for now. Enjoy the panel and enjoy the interviews. How are you all? Enjoying the day? Yeah, very, very well. Good, good. I'm hating it. I hope you're hating every minute. Sorry, we ended up sitting down and didn't call over you. I know, we're quite careful. I know, I was sitting there and passing it. We've stayed the same like Ants and Dead all the time. Yes, okay. So you are Dominic's? Some of them, yeah. Yes. Um, for those who do not know who you, which dance you played over the years, can you give them every episode, the amount of time you've been in that episode, which Darnick it was, etc., etc. So yeah, a brief introduction from all of you, that's okay. I'm the, the CGI Dalek in like, uh, just the one in the background behind, no, we're all the Daleks really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is actually really hard to say because, you know, people often say, you know, people sometimes at signings, they come up with a photo and say, right, which Dalek are you in this? Photo, you go, oh, I can't remember. Uh, sometimes, of course, you can because it's an obvious thing, like it's the black one or the red one or something, you know. But um, Barney and I have been the sort of principal two Daleks for the whole time since I came back um, in 2005. But that means that we don't just stick to the same one Dalek per episode. We are basically whichever two Daleks are kind of in the foreground doing all the busy stuff in any given scene. So in any given episode, we're lots of different Daleks. Yeah, sometimes it's easy to tell. So I'm able to say, for example, in the most recent big Dalek story, the one with Davros, and you can see that one, I was the big red supreme all the way through. So that's easy to spot because he's the big red one on the podium. But I was about half a dozen other Daleks as well. You know, Barney was the Cara Dalek in that, weren't you? Wasn't actually Clara inside that Dalek. Sorry, to you. Uh, and yet, you know, so yeah, I want to be the Black Dalek in Doomsday, but you were obviously the Dalek in Dalek. So sometimes you can, but most of the time, 
with kind of all of them, you know, and, and Dan as well. You're about eight members of the Cult of Scarrow, and there are, there are only four of them. Yeah, I think it was just about every member of the Cult of Scarrow at some point during that shoot. It's interesting actually because obviously they all had names. Some of you have seen those episodes, I imagine, with the Cult of Scarrow. Um, they all had different names and they had different sort of insignias on the domes, didn't they? An obvious sort of flaw that we thought when we went into the, the studio was, well, okay, but they do have to swap the Daleks around because they all have slightly different ways of working. Some of the domes will, you know, rotate all of the way around because they're animatronic and some of them are manual and they all do slightly different things and, and, and operate slightly differently. So in any number of those scenes, you will see, you know, the number plates magically changing <laughs> on each of the Daleks. So yeah, we, we sort of ended up sort of swapping around quite a lot in that room. I mean, that scene that uh, John just played there where all the, the paradigm Daleks come through, uh, through coming through the beautiful, you know, tonight Matthew, I will be uh, a new Dalek. Um, in the start of your eye sequence, it's coming through the steam, up the ramps through the steam, until it sort of forms that thing, and then all one's pull. That's me. And then I got out of that one, Nick got in that one, played for the rest of the scene, and I get in the little small one yep. that confronts so, really, him. That's Barney coming through now, but as soon as he's. I'm in the blue one just behind, but as soon as it stops and we all line up, I'm the white one for the rest of that story because Barney skipped into one of the other ones. I mean, it, you know, it's, that's the sort of thing. Johnson. Which one are you in, John? Uh, the orange. The orange. Yeah, yeah, for a couple of shots and then you end up different ones afterwards, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So now I have disappeared and uh, I think I'm still there for that shot. But when the other, the other little one, church one, comes in, I get out and get in that. That's me there. Um, and because you've been, you've, you've been so many Daleks, classics as well, do you, you know, do you assign a little character to each of the mutants inside? Do they move slightly differently? It's going to sound awful, but yes. Um, I did the, uh, the, uh, the special weapons Dalek, um, and uh, that's, you know, that's like a kind of grunt, big grunt Dalek, and so you do have to kind of, well, actually, you can't physically fit inside it anyway, so you do do that anyway. Um, but yes, yeah, so I do, yes, we do, kind of. You know. yeah. And if you're playing, I've done the Supreme before as well, if you're playing the Supreme, it is a slightly different sort of duck. Basically, you know, yeah. it's nice to give them a little bit of uh, proper uh, character work. I mean, Marlon Brando would have done the same. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fair to say as well that different directors ask for different types of Dalek movement as well. You know, it's up to the taste of the, As John was saying on this uh, talk earlier on, you do basically, you know, a, a large part of our job does consist of doing as we're told. Uh, so obviously we bring our Dalek experience to the table. But if the director wants the Daleks to move less or move more, then that's up to the director. So, for example, in, is this... This is a bit from Doomsday we're seeing here, isn't it? Where I'm kind of seeing behind the screen here and it's backwards. Actually, John, are you able to get back to the big wide shot that's just before that on Doomsday? That, yeah, no, that, there, that, stop, yes, that. Uh, because there's, there's a whole little story attached to that, which you may have heard before because I've told this story before. But yeah, on this story, um, Graham Harper directed this, and he was quite keen for the Daleks to be quite jittery and quite sort of, you know, moving around. So if you watch this story, you'll see that when we're speaking, even when it's just a close-up of the Dalek going exterminate, we're kind of going a lot, because he wanted that, you know, which is a nice, you know, he wanted them to be quite nervy. Other directors have wanted them to be very still and impassive, so you know. But, yeah, the story about this is, and you can see it absolutely clear as crystal on this wide shot. I was the black Dalek in this story. I, I, I got to be, uh, yeah, which one are you, Barney? This. That one, okay, jolly good. And you're there too somewhere down, aren't you? You're the one. You're the one at the back. Anyway, so we burst through this door, knocking our plungers off several times. That's another story. Uh, and coming, this was a huge, huge shot. There's Cybermen, there's stuntmen waiting to fall over, there's explosions waiting to go off. This was a big shot to set up, and it was expensive, and we rehearsed it quite a lot. And, you know, so that when you get to the 
take. You've got to get it right, okay? Now, if you look kind of practically in the middle of that shot, and my beautiful assistant is now, you see that horizontal line there? This was on location. This was in a big aircraft hangar somewhere out of RF St. Athens or something. You were a cyberman. Yeah, 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 yeah. So John was one of the cybermen in this. Um, yeah, anyway, that horizontal line is a sort of corrugated break in the concrete on the floor. I don't know why it was there. I don't know anything about putting down concrete floors. But there was this whole sort of, like a cattle grid almost, of, of wibbly-wobbly concrete there. We'd rehearsed this a few times. And because I was the lead darling, several times I'd gone over that. And it was just like going over a cattle grid. over with my wheels. And it looked crap. And every time I went, I went over, I thought, oh, that is, this isn't going to be doing this darling any good. That was, by the way, the oldest Dalek. The black Dalek in that was the one from the episode Dalek, which they had then painted black. It wasn't a new one, it was the oldest one. So, anyway, having rehearsed it a few times, and Graham would say, don't worry, obviously when you get to that, we'll cut away to a close-up of someone firing in or something else. So don't worry that you're bumping up and down, but you do need to keep going, because we need to get you to go right over there to the last bit of the shot, but just keep going. Because, so anyway, that was the thing. Every time we rehearsed it, I thought, this is getting the front wheel of my dolly. It's getting a bit more every time. Anyway, came to the big shot. Everyone's ready. All the stuntmen are ready. All the explosions are going to go off. Action. And on we come. We get to the thing. I'm the first Dalek, so I get to the concrete category. And the front wheel of my dolly just completely snapped off. And my sort of prow of my dolly hit the floor. And I wasn't going anywhere. I couldn't move. There's stuntmen flying everywhere, explosions going off everywhere. The first assistant director's going, Daleks, keep moving! And it's like going, I really can't! Uh, I was trying to look. Uh, like professionals, we just went round him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, of course, we had to, you know, eventually it was cut, cut, have to go back, do it all again. And, you know, luckily no one sort of fired me. It wasn't my fault. It was just that the Dalek had, you know, decided to take that. So they, they repaired it and we did it again. And, you know, I went and had a drink with a couple of Cybermen or something while we, uh, while they got it fixed. And we, we got it in. But, yeah, sorry, sorry, you know, license fee payers. I don't, I don't know how many license fees went up in smoke at that moment, but it wasn't really my fault. I just happened to be the man in the Dalek. But we always have to have this thing as well, because sometimes you'd be shooting in a different sequence and Dan would have to go up and do a green screen or something like that. And then you kind of have this crossover point where you where you meet and you say, now, I came in and I was kind of doing that a bit and then I moved in there. So you'll have to pick that up tomorrow and be me yeah. as you go. So lots of shots where, like the, the white one, there's a sort of shot where I go into a lift as a dog and you emerge. Yeah. Um, very, much, very much like Superman. <laughs> I, I did wonder, kind of related to that question, whether you... I don't think it is the case from what you've said, but if you have favourite shells or whether you have shells that you avoid, a bit like the bad shopping trolley at the yep. supermarket. Definitely. Dan so when, I was going to say, <laughs> when Dan came along, did he make, he made sure he got the... Uh, yeah, we have Dan number three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had the crap one. Um, <laughs> well, mine had a, a, a sort of hand operated, a manual operated dome. Some of them had animatronic. On the shot, on the shoots that we were doing, you always had animatronics. Yeah, one, yeah. two with animatronics. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, principally, I sort of got used to having to do that and that, you know, and all of that at the same time. So because I sort of got used to that when I came back on the show for um, the other two episodes, I, you know, obviously naturally opted for that Dalek because it was the one that I was used to. But you sort of get used. They all are very, very different. They're all weighted differently, they all feel very different, and they operate very differently from the side. So so, oh, so don't go near, that's Barnaby's one, leave that one alone. <laughs> that's the one with the fluffy dice in it. Yeah, <laughs> And the cocktail bar, obviously. When they first brought the Dalek back for Dalek, um, they used a, obviously, yeah, external design is very, very different. 
Um, uh, and the actual, but the actual base, they, they've got an old one from the BBC's archives uh, from the 1970s, and uh, they spent ages coming here trying to replicate it. And there were these two bicycle clips on the sort of interior of the prow. And um, uh, Mike Tucker, who was building the Dalek, uh, uh, was just saying, we just spent ages trying to work out what these were. And then we found this, this old guy who worked at the BBC, and he said, oh yeah, that's, those are the bicycle clips for his thermos flask. <laughs> Sadly, they removed them as soon as I got there. Let's leave that. Just the mini bar. John Scott Martin, yeah, it's Well, I always imagine that the seventies darts probably had ashtrays in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and no seatbelts. <laughs> I'm sure I've seen a photo actually from it. Might even be from Annika's one from Power of the Dark. There's certainly a photo of the sixties darts with their lids off and they're all sort of puffing away in cigarettes in the studio. I mean, obviously, utterly. Do you know, Graham Harper, on one of the ones he directed, actually it wasn't that one, it was Stolen Earth. We were, the Stolen Earth two-part story was night shoot after night shoot after night shoot, because you know the Earth had got moved into space, so everything was dark, so everything we did on location was in the middle of the night, you know, at two o'clock in the morning somewhere, at about this time of year as well. It, it wasn't the greatest fun we've ever had. It was, of course it was huge fun shooting it, but the kind of... Regime was not very good. Anyway, uh, but I remember on, in some godforsaken location somewhere, Graham Harper turned to us, we were all shivering around the burner waiting to go on, and, uh, and Graham Harper came and said, you guys should all take up knitting. That's what, that's what my Dalek boys used to do back in the 80s, because he directed a Dalek story way back in the 1980s. And he said this, he said they all used to do knitting. Well, I'm like, I don't know, I don't, do, do you guys knit at all? I, I don't know. So that, sadly, we just, you know, just, just complained instead. Uh, uh, yeah. Crochet, yeah, crochet, crochet, obviously. Yeah. Now you're talking about crochet. Crochet's easy. But that Stolen Earth story, was, especially the first episode of it, it was set in all these different locations around, you know, there was Unit HQ somewhere, and there was Torchwood, and there was wherever there was. And there was a whole sequence of scenes which all ended with the Daleks arriving and exterminating everyone, yeah? And there was um, Penelope Wilton on, in her cottage as well, you know, all that sort of stuff. Which meant, of course, that the last thing that was done on each of those shoots was the Daleks arriving and exterminating everyone, because they blow the wall up and there's smoke everywhere, so you can't, you know, you have to do that last. But what that meant for us was that we were called at sort of, you know, half past ten at night or whatever it was, and we patiently sat around freezing to death in various trailers up various hills in parts of Cardiff. And they eventually got round to us at about five o'clock in the morning. So, right, Daleks, you're last one. Get in your Daleks, trundle on, go exterminate. Right, that's it, everyone home. And that's, you know, that was our lovely night. Night after night after night, wasn't it? But hey, look, it's a living thing. Well, what about directors? I mean, you mentioned Graham half a minute ago. Um, he's obviously a bag of energy, I'd imagine. But, you know, do you have a particular favour that you oh, I really love to be directed by this person? Oh, Graham Harper was lovely, because when we did The Stolen Earth, it had the red uh, uh, supreme, or the superb Dalek, as Graham kept mistakenly calling it. <laughs> when the superb Dalek comes in, it's, uh, <laughs> um, So no, we obviously love Graham Harper. Come, yes please. Yes please, that's the whole time. Yes please, that made you done well. Um, uh, but I think also Nick Hurran was amazing. We had, because uh, Nick and I had sort of meetings with him beforehand to discuss the whole Parliament of the Daleks, how it would work, and yeah. So we kind of choreographed all of Asylum before we even shot it, which meant it was much quicker to shoot, uh, because we already knew what we were doing. Absolutely, Eddie. I think you alluded to it earlier, actually. You said that, um, you know, the, the, the Daleks were treated in very different ways in different episodes. I think you said that, Nick. Yeah. In, the, in the first season, um, Joe Ahern was directing the, the Dalek episodes, and he had a very sort of, um, very prescriptive idea of how he wanted them to move. He wanted them to be 
quite sort of static but very deliberate and robotic in their movements, which is quite new for Doctor Who. I think if you look at a lot of the old episodes of Doctor Who, the Daleks are constantly moving and, and wearing around because there's a feeling that as soon as you sort of leave a Dalek static, that it tends to look like a piece of furniture. Um, but I think Joe had a sort of very different idea, and so you know we, we were directed to do something very deliberate. And then you know in the second season, the Cult of Scarrow came in, and they were very sort of angry and emotional, but also very frightened and desperate, and you know trying to seek their brethren and you know trying all this sort of stuff. So they were very much sort of panicked children and and very sort of you know um, very wild in their movements and very animated. So it's quite quite different, and I think you can see a very different style of. Dalek movement when you compare those episodes. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the initial sort of robotic thing, because I have the Dalek in Dalek, the first night in Rob's fantastic script, um, and Rob had written this about, oh, just as you were passing by, when you go out, I'll, st- I'll say the nasty things. Yeah, yeah, And Rob had written this fantastic script where he does all these amazing, amazing things. I think Joe had, I had a conversation with him about kind of Robocops, the whole sort of, you know, and that was kind of where we worked out the whole sort of, you know, turn head, move body, which I totally stole from Peter Weller and Robocop, so I do him a big favour. Uh, not that he knows who I am. Um, but, so yeah, so we did that, and then as you say, when they brought them back, Joe said I want them to move. I remember when we were doing that, that, that final one, he did say, I want them to move. What can you say, what else can you do? And I said, well, what else do you want? And he said, fast. Yeah. Uh, so we hurtling down these corridors, yeah. Which is not easy, actually. There, there were some scenes that we did, um, there were some principal ones that I got called up for, because I, I, I ought to explain that I sort of got involved in Doctor Who really through a, a sort of necessity, really, where it was just a sort of emergency that, um, unfortunately, one of the Dalek operators who worked on the first season, Dave Hankinson, couldn't make some of the, the filming. And these lovely chaps that I've known for years and years um, sort of gave me a phone call and said, look, could you come up and do it? And I'm obviously a huge Doctor Who fan, so I said, no, I couldn't possibly, no, I didn't. I said, yes, obviously, immediately. So I hurtled up to Cardiff to do it, so that was lovely. And I had, a, um, as John was saying earlier, a, an absolute crash course in learning to operate at Arctic. And it's, as these chaps will tell you, it's extremely difficult. But um, we had to do some those amazing sort of scenes, well not amazing, but those scenes where we arrived onto Satellite 5 and, you know, invaded the, the, the space station and everything. And we were doing just that. We were coming up to the, the doorways and turning 90 degrees, turning up domes, turning in and going through these doorways. But the doorways, they'd only just sort of cut so that they were about an inch either side of the, the size of the Dalek. In fact, I think on the first... Before you, arrived, they, before you arrived, Nick noticed before lunch that they weren't quite wide enough for the Daleks. Yeah. And so when they came back, these beautiful doors like that, it was kind of doing, uh, 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 and always let the Daleks through. But they were very narrow. Yeah. They, were, they were extremely narrow, and it was very tight. So we would literally sort of trundle up, and you've got no sort of vision to the side of you. You've only got a little letterbox sort of vision. Turn your dome, turn the Dalek, and go through the doorway. But you can't see anything. And bearing in mind that the, this, the entrance hatch was sort of, you know, two inches wider than the base of your Dalek, it was extremely difficult. I think I hit one of the, um, the entrance ways and my sucker snapped off and bounced onto the floor at one point. Actually, uh, when we were doing this bit that John's got back to now, the, the, the stars in their eyes entrance of the new Daleks, as we call it, um, we, because of all the lights and all the smoke and everything, we couldn't see a thing uh, in these Daleks. And we had several rehearsals that were a complete disaster. 
where we just bumped into everything. This was on location, incidentally, uh, in a, a, a tobacco factory, of all places, a cigar factory. Uh, this was in, out there. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what that meant was that this, this big steel box that we were uh, shooting in was actually uh, sort of a few feet, about as far off the floor as this platform that we're sitting on. So they had to build a ramp up to it. Um, so we had to, not only did we have to come in through this very narrow door, we had to come up a ramp first, okay? And we couldn't see anything, so we just made a complete hash of it the first few times and bumped into everything. And we said, well, we just can't see because of the smoke and the lights. So in the end, the way that we solved it was that they just got some sticky LX tape, like the stuff that gets put around here for where you put mics down and things, and they just put a line of it along the floor. And we didn't look forward at all. We just looked down at the floor and followed the, followed the line. And we had lights in our, you know, they gave us those things like, you know, and we just looked down at the floor and shone on the floor and just did that. And, you know, eventually <laughs> got it done. But it was a bit of a, bit of a nightmare. They were very, very heavy, those Daleks as well. They're much, much heavier than the regular Daleks. So they were quite difficult to get up around. And they're also just so huge. Their sort of footprint of them was so enormous. There's a reason why they come on and then just sit in a row. Because if one of those rotated on the spot, it would crash into the two on either side because the sort of footprint of the Daleks is so big. Uh, these were among the reasons that those Daleks didn't last very long. <laughs> I was gonna, um, I think most of us know the story about where Catherine Tate wasn't even aware that there was anyone inside the Dalek yeah. case. Yeah. She, I think she thought they were all robotic or something like that. Have you got any other stories about actors or even doctors and how they interacted with, with you while you were in the suits? <laughs> well, well, there was this moment when Peter Purvis. Uh, was, uh, no, uh, yeah, it's kind of like they do forget you're in there, but it's also a bit like Dalek Confessional because uh, uh, they sort of come to you. Uh, um, Liz Lane used to she was doing it constantly with a film in Star Wars. She would come, she would just sidle up and say something very quietly through the Dalek grill. Like they, they can unburden their souls to us. Of course, we then. We then tweet it straight at the sun, and we, we, that's how you make your money. All the Daleks are Catholic. <laughs> In their tastes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it is amazing what you over here sometimes. You know, if we, if we wanted to, you know, write Doctor Who Babylon, we probably could. But, uh, but you know, maybe when we're old and retired and don't care anymore. Uh, Spill the beans, but no, it is. It is yeah, you, you do. People do sometimes forget that you're in there and, and say slightly indiscreet things as they walk past. So yeah, but that's okay. We uh, you know that's true. It is. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a, of a you know when because we we get in, we often sit in the sort of bottom half of our Dalek casings while we're rehearsing. You know, before the tops get put on, because it's a lot easier and quicker to rehearse that way. Once the top goes on, it's a lot harder for the director to communicate with us. You know, you can't see as much, you can't hear them as well, they can't tell whether that one's Barnaby or me or Dan or whatever. So anyway, for all of those reasons, we rehearse without the lids on to the last minute and then they go on. So quite often we'll be sitting around in the studio just in our, you know, bottom bases of our Daleks just kind of waiting for something to happen. And during those periods, you know, all sorts of hilarious things do, do, do happen. I mean, I've got very fond memories of, um, of watching Peter Capaldi mastering, I'm not sure if that's quite the right word, the remote control that they gave him for the Davros chair. Because you know when he's whizzing around in the Davros chair in that episode? 
it, that wasn't, he wasn't doing it with his feet, because they quite rightly thought, well, if we can't make him do it with his feet, what is actually, because he'll be going like that and it'll be obvious. So, for the first time ever, they did actually make... And the last time. And the, and the last time, yeah. They actually made a radio control thing, which he hadn't controlled himself, okay? So he's sitting in the Dalek thing, the script in one hand still working out the lines, and with the other hand, he's got this sort of joystick, basically, and, you know, left, right, forwards, thing. but it was incredibly sensitive. Um, and, you know, it's, and they, as is always the way with these things, they gave him all of, you know, 20 minutes to have a go before we started shooting, you know. So he came in and he got into it and then, all right, so how does this work? And he kind of twiddled the thing and it just went around the circle. Okay, no, no, okay, so that's left. <laughs> so that's right, and then, right, let's try forward. And he just went Vroom, across the studio. <laughs> Smashed right into the into the wall of the set. You know that beautiful uh, control room set. Um, and bearing in mind that we were all out of our Daleks at the time, and there were a lot of Daleks on that set. What happens when you're out of your, haven't got the lids on, is that the domes and the necks and the other bits are just sitting around on the floor everywhere. Okay. So I was sitting in my Supreme on the podium, but the head of the Supreme was just near the sort of on the floor, sitting on the floor near the sort of plywood wall of the kind of platform bit that was near the Supreme that had some other Daleks on the top of it, you know. Uh, but this was just made of thin plywood, painted silver, looked beautiful and everything. But anyway, that's what Peter suddenly went, uttering a word that is not normally heard in <laughs> Gallifreyan vocabulary. Uh, he shot towards it, collided with the dome of the Supreme Dalek, and just pushed it right through this, this plywood wall, leaving a hole, you know, like in a cartoon when Bucks Bunny goes through a wall. There was this kind of like shape of a Daleks do, and it just smashed the whole thing, and there's this terrible silence fell, and Peter sort of, sort of reversed, <laughs> and everyone just went, oh, uh, and, and then Hetty, the director, brilliant, this is what directors are for, she said, okay, smashing, someone fix that please, okay, let's move on, Peter, so we're going to uh, and it was, and it was just like, someone fix that please, and sure enough, of course, there are people on the set whose job is to fix that, and they came and they fixed it, and you would never know, but yeah, it was a, I think the, you know, the, 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 the head had a narrow getaway, because it's full of servos and remote control stuff, and it could have been smashed as it but luckily it wasn't, anyway, that was a funny, that was a funny half an hour watching that, watching that happening, I'm sure in the final product even there are bits, if you look closely enough, where he's going Tweaks it, and it goes a little bit faster than he was expecting. And he said, oh, "Okay." Yeah. So you, you really don't think that's a good idea, then? Having, having... No, 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 no. It was like that bit in the wrong trousers, yeah, where, like the wrong where Wallace gets stuck in it, and someone else, and Feathers McGraw is operating those trousers. It was just like that. There's this poor top part of Peter Crowley swaying around, while the bottom just going everywhere else. Staying back, Catherine Taylor, no, I did um, the, uh, we did live things with Carlos uh, someplace as well as John was talking about. And I did the National Film and Television Awards or something, I don't think. But I had to come onto the stage. And everyone does kind of think, you know, when, since they came back, they all think they're, they're um, remote control because they imagine the BBC spends any money on them. Um, and I remember coming on, and I was all excited because it just, you lot were effectively replaced with very famous faces. Not that you aren't very famous faces, but Hugh Laurie was sitting right in the middle. And I remember sort of coming in, looking out, thinking, oh, Hugh Laurie, and I sort of parked right in front of him to look impressive. And I saw Hugh Laurie sort of squinting like that, looking down the dial like that, until he saw my feet just underneath it, and he went, in a sort of, yeah, I'm glad, yeah, of course, it's just the same thing, there are just people inside. It was a real sort of, yeah, BBC haven't spent any money on that, I know about that, yeah. And I'll just hire some hapless actor. Um, you do go out as well. I mean, John did the kind of the prom stuff, and you've done things on stage and, and around. 
you know, how are you more nervous because it's live and stuff can go wrong, or are you quite confident there? It is, no, it is. I mean, it's fun to do them live, but I mean, I've done a couple of proms as well, and it is, um, it is, yeah, the first time I did proms, they had the bright idea of bringing the Dalek up in the middle of the, of the, sort of the stalls of the proms. And then uh, I would sort of move through the crowd, and they said the crowd will part for you. That didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> like, the crowd kind of like limpets attached themselves to me, and I was kind of thinking, "This is really hard to pull this one along." And I had like a trail of children who <laughs> accreted like, like like coral onto the side of the garlic. And, so, and meanwhile, my handler, who sort of said the, the path will be through, is like, taking photos, and I was like, "I'm going to grind to a halt now." And so, yeah, and John said, going up on Canberra, because Canberra is very bad, and again, the, I've done the BAFTAs, and, and up, up are really slightly like carpet. It's all carpet. Oh. Protect yourself with narrow doors and carpet. Dallas <laughs> will never be able to find it. <laughs> I think yeah. Rod needs to add that to the next script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stairs are a dollar, but carpet, yeah. ooh. No, there's a, there's a going back to the stolen earth, or actually the episode after that. What's the second episode? Is that called the journey, voyage home? Journey no, um, journey's end. The yeah. voyage home to Star Trek films. Anyway, what's it called? The big whale. Anyway, the, the, epi- the bit in that story, anyway, right, uh, where the Daleks are testing their reality bomb and they've got all those prisoners um, in, a, in a really Ridley Scott place with dangling chains and that, that, um, that, that, that was on location in the middle of the night again somewhere. But I come up at the beginning of that sequence, I'm a Dalek that's coming up a ramp and, you know, saying, you know, bring the prisoners or whatever the line was. Um, but I absolutely couldn't get up the ramp. It was really quite steep. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just me. I've got a reasonably strong pair of thighs, but it defeated me. And in the end, the props, Charlotte and a uh, fantastic guy called Phil Shellard, who worked on the show for years and years and years, just crashed down behind the Dalek and pushed me up. So, uh, you know, if you look very closely, you might possibly see his... Uh, seeing his fingers. No, I don't think you can. But anyway, yeah, he was just pushing me up the ramp because I just couldn't do it. So I could concentrate on waggling me plunger instead, you know, so uh, that was good. But no, going back to the live thing, actually, the, the thing I did a year or two ago that was quite hair-raising, but I mean, a fantastic, wonderful thing to do, and it was huge fun, but it was quite hairy because it was, it was recorded, but it was recorded live, was a thing for children in need. It was not the one just recently, but the year before. I don't know if any of you saw it then or can remember, but Harry Hill did this sketch. It was like, here's Harry Hill's history of, the entire history of television in three and a half minutes or something. And it was Harry sitting at his desk, you know, like his Harry Hill's TV book desk. And people came on from Coronation Street and whatever, and strange puppets came on, and it was all Harry Hill crazy stuff. And right at the end, Nadia from Bake Off, who had just won at that time, had just won Bake Off, came on and with a big cake and splashed it in the face with it, you know, and that was the thing. Anyway, at one point, of course, they had Doctor Who, so the Dalek came across going each minute, and I was, I was that Dalek. And it was a great, fun day, we rehearsed it, and then we did it in front of the audience um, at Elstree. But the whole point of it was, it really was done in three and a half minutes live because Harry Hill is really amazing like that. He really wanted to do it for real with no pickups and no nothing. And watching him work was just extraordinary because he had to sit there getting it all right because he was putting on different hats and pulling things off and putting on funny pairs of glasses and having to do this and that and get the timing exactly right. So we rehearsed it all day and then we went to, and there were all sorts of people like Peter Purvis was on it in the sort of blue Peter bit. And you only had three and a half minutes. You only had three and a half minutes on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and Peter Davison was also in it. In the old, there was an old creatures great and small bit where the back end of a cow came on, and he said, oh, "That's right." Harry Hill said, "Oh, I need some help with this. Call the midwife." And Jenny Agatha came on, and she was, uh, you know, lovely Jenny Agatha. I couldn't believe these amazing people I was working with. Anyway, so they pulled on this cow, and Peter Davison's head popped out of the cow's rear end, and he looks out and says, "I've been stuck out there for forty years." Or something. And it went on like this, and it was, you know, it was a great fun thing to do. But yeah, but all I really had to do was come on at the right moment. Fred and Harry stop in the middle, go exterminate, exterminate, and go off again. But I absolutely had to do it with split second timing, you know, and uh, that was quite scary. But oh, what a fun day! God, I met Basil Brush as well. I met Basil Brush, which was amazing. And the guy who does Basil Brush now, who's you know the original guy, died quite some time ago. But uh, the, the guy, Basil Brush's friend, who helps him with his movement and voice, uh, yeah. But who's great is he? And I helped Basil Brush, and, he, and Basil Brush called me Mr. Nick. He said, oh, hello, Mr. Nick. Oh, God, my life is complete. Sorry, going a bit off topic Mr. Nick, have we got any questions about Daleks from the audience? I was going to ask a Basil Brush question. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Roy or Mr. Derrick? Oh. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's just like Doctor Who, isn't it? It's how old you were at the time. I was kind of a Mr. Roy yeah, boy. Good. But then there was Mr. Howard just off that, wasn't there? I can't remember his name. Howard something. I can remember his name. But I'm probably a Mr. Roy. Roy North, wasn't it? Yeah. Does anyone know what we're talking about? <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's an only thing. But he's back, isn't he? Basil Brush is back. He's yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Still funny. Any, any other questions about Daleks? Can we have a big hand for the X-Wing people? <laughs> they are really good Daleks. They are impressive Daleks. Um, just going to sidestep a little bit. I mean, you know, obviously Daleks, 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 Daleks. But you're actors who do other things as well. Um, I'm just wondering, in Doctor Who itself, have you ever considered putting yourself forward for a speaking role? Yes, that's, that's, how, that's how it works. Though. You say, I think I'd like to be the master <laughs> this season. Uh, and they say, oh, of course. <laughs> Barney, absolutely. You are, just go straight in. But yeah, I mean, we'll chuck her out. She's had a couple of years as Missy. Uh, <laughs> go straight in. Um, no, <laughs> uh, no, obviously, Bronx would be lovely to play. I've done, I've done, I did a, one of the, the, pre, the um, prequels of Sign of the Dallas, like John's done some stuff, I did the people of Sign of the Dallas, where I actually did get to speak, and then had this fantastic makeup job playing this hooded monk with uh, scenes with Matt Smith, having tea with Matt Smith, all that kind of stuff, and then I thought, I thought, finally, my moment has come, my face will appear on this, I've got all this very expensive makeup they put on me, and then they CG'd out my face, just like a black thing, and, at least my voice is there at least, that's something, I, I made that far. Um, yeah, I'd like to play it. I'd like to play Bok. <laughs> I'd like to be a resurre resurrected Adric, I think. <laughs> oh, no. Only because I can wear my pajamas all day. You don't have to dress. So, what character would you like to play? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, 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 if you know me, obviously, it'd be lovely to, to do. I, um, Andrew Ambassador? Yeah, I'm Andrew Ambassador from China, obviously. Plasmaton, maybe. They were good. Anyone, anyone know the Plasmatons? When, when are they going to come back? They were, they were really, really rubbish, <laughs> weren't they? they were, uh, that's from the 1980s. Um, no, seriously, what would I like to say? Um, yeah, I mean, it'd be lovely, obviously. I mean, I think the, it tends to be the case, and 
you know, fine by me, that they, they sort of, they've got us marked down as the Dalek guys now, you know, so that's our little niche in Doctor Who, and that's cool, you know, hey, how, how fantastic to, to be a Dalek. It's not that they don't think we're capable of doing anything else, it's just that they kind of, I think they probably think, well, that's, that's, their, that's their job, we won't trouble them with anything else, but of course we wouldn't mind being troubled as well, yes, we love them. Um, I did audition, actually, years ago, I auditioned for a part in the first, I think it was the first series of Torchwood, I didn't get it. I think I was too old. Well, that's what they told me anyway. I don't know if they were just trying to. It was it was a very small part, but it was in some episode of Torchwood. I'm, you'll know this better than I do. I can't remember. But um, basically, one of my pathetic superpowers is that I did do Latin to quite a high level of my education, so I can sort of. Well, I can speak Latin. That's probably pushing it a bit, but I can bust it in that. And it was anyway. It was a Roman soldier who had been catapulted into the present day, and they had him in a police cell or something. But uh, so anyway, I got called up to see the casting director to go and do that. Uh, but anyway, I read the script in the thing, and, and I read the actual scene, and it involved Captain Jack coming into the cell and kind of jumping on him and or something. Uh, and then they, the, it kind of, it was a very quick little scene. And then they said something like, "Shall we, shall we, shall we, shall we call the call the police, sir, or something?" And Captain Jack had a line like, "No, I'm fine, thanks," or something like that. So I thought, well, okay, so it's a funny scene. And the whole point is that Captain Jack. You know, I just thought, look, basically, you're not really looking for a, this is a few years ago, but even so, you're not really looking for a sort of bald, more or less nearly middle-aged man, are you? You're looking for a sexy young guy for Captain Jack to do that innuendo with. And sure enough, I got the answer back saying, we loved you, your audition was wonderful, we, we all loved it, we just decided to go with someone, you know, a bit, a bit younger. <laughs> Frankly, I'd far rather be told that I'm too old than that I'm too rubbish, you know, <laughs> so that was, that was all right. But no, you yeah, know, it's... Yeah, it'd be nice to do something else. I'd like to play a draconian, actually. That's what I'd like to do. They were lovely monsters. I'd love to do one of them. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Don't make that Yeah, yeah. You've got the gate. It may come as a shock to some people, but uh, all three of these people don't just run around in Daleks all day. Um, you, you're, all, you're all writers, which is something be nice to hear you talk about. Um, but, you know, equally on your CV, what, what would you say? Do you have actor at the top, or do you consider yourself next to a writer or a director? Or I, I think in the same way that both uh, uh, Joe and Rob were saying earlier about the writing thing, you try and do anything other than write. Um, uh, having having written is a fantastic experience. You know, it's there, it's done, it's finished. Ta da! Um, the whole process of writing is, is, as Rob said, you have to kind of fool yourself into believing that you're not actually writing. You go, oh no, no, I'm just having just having a tea. Oh, I've written something. Um, because it, it, it's, it's a horrible kind of lonely process, uh, um, but deeply rewarding. It's one of the most rewarding things you do, but it's also one of the most frustrating kind of processes. Um, I don't know. I think I think just Renaissance men is what we want to call Completely out of touch. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, I think it's usually whatever I'm not doing at the time I really like. <laughs> no, I agree. I think. You know, everyone imagines that writing is a, is a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing. I, I love writing, a little bit of writing that I do. Um, you know, had some stuff published and things. You know, it's, it's lovely, but it's just, well, as you guys know, creative writers out there, it's an incredibly hard thing to do. And I absolutely associate myself with what Rob was saying earlier about how difficult it is. Um, you just have to somehow, I don't know, there's a magic thing that sometimes happens that you're in the right place at the right time. And you know something hopefully flows out, but you spend an awful lot of time not feeling like that, and that's it's very very hard. I envy people that can do it so easily. Have you been doing any writing recently? <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing at all. Uh, no, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, quite a bit. Um, yes, I mean, uh, 
I'm, I, I've written all sorts of things over the years. I've, I've written a few scripts and things and plays and this and that and the other. But yeah, one of the things that I wrote, uh, for, for those who don't know, and there's no reason why you should know, uh, I wrote quite a big book about, <laughs> about a pop star who I like very much indeed um, and who very sadly died about a year ago, um, David Bowie. Um, as, uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I wrote a book called The Complete David Bowie, which originally came out um, about 15, 16, 17 years ago. It came out in 2000, yeah. Um, and uh, so, yes, you know, very sadly, David Bowie died at the beginning of last year. And uh, so, yeah, the last uh, <laughs> the last year that I've just had has been heavily, heavily dominated by, by David Bowie. I didn't start writing a new edition of the book, you know, the day he died. That would have been a dreadful thing to do, but... Um, but the book was actually already a few years out of date. I had already been talking to my publisher about updating it. It had been through a few more editions since it first came out, but it was about five years out of date. Um, so anyway, after a, two or three months after he died, I, you know, the publisher got in touch and said, right, come on, let's, let's do it. Uh, so yeah, I spent most of last year, certainly about seven months or seven or eight months of last year, solidly, including weekends, long days, uh, doing nothing but sitting in my room writing and you know, researching and writing and getting my book up to date about uh, all about all about the wonderful world of David Bowie because I wanted to make sure I got it right in the last you know the last the last may well be the last edition um, yeah and then in the midst of all that I did a lot of other stuff to do with because you know because of my book I'm I, I'm, I'm flattered to become regarded as someone who kind of is someone who knows a bit about David Bowie. So I do occasionally get asked to do things. So in the last year, I've, I've, you know, I've worked as a consultant on a big documentary that was shown on BBC2 about a month ago called David Bowie, The Last Five Years. Uh, and I also worked on a Radio 2 documentary about the song Life on Mars. And I did a very sort of commemorative tribute. I shot a little tribute video with Gary Kemp of Spandau Ballet, which you can still find on the Guardian website, um, which was very sweet. We spent a day driving around London going to sort of David Bowie landmarks in London and looking at them because Gary's a huge fan of, uh, of Bowie as well. And yes, there's some embarrassing, some embarrassing car sing-alongs. Like, yeah, and I did some tribute events. Yeah, my mate Gary yeah. got to know uh, got to know all sorts of lovely people last year for the saddest of reasons, you know. But uh, but yeah, um, another artist I usually admire and have done for many many years, Mark Almond, who's another big David Bowie fan. I uh, had the great pleasure of getting to know him last year because we did some tribute commemorative stuff together. Uh, what a lovely man, nicest man you could hope to meet. Um, so yeah, yeah, my, I have done a lot of writing lately and it's nearly all been about David Bowie. But, but swinging it back to Doctor Who a little bit, yeah. um, I, your brain is incredible by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, it just is, it's I mean, nice. I can see it, I see it from here, through the years, it's amazing. Um, but second favourite audience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. Damn. Stop. Um, you know, okay, right, look, David Bowie, he, he was the spaceman, right? But um, is there anything you can directly link to Doctor Who? What, David Bowie and Doctor Who? Yeah, oh, directly. Honestly, loads. I mean, I, you know, I am quite a sad Doctor Who fan as well, and I'm a sad David Bowie fan. Oh, yeah, 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 where do I start? Honestly, loads. Um, uh, You've got a minute. Um, I've got a minute, okay, okay. <laughs> They'll just be the ones that pop into my head straight away. Okay, uh, this is a bit... Before I end a bit, this is hugely sad. Paddy Kingsland of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, who did many of the incidental scores of Doctor Who in the early 1980s, did stories like Logopolis and Casarabal, um, uh, uh, was the sound engineer on some of David Perry's early 1970s BBC radio sessions. That's good, isn't it? Um, 
Uh, I'd like to think that, you know, the sort of proto-prog score of Modern Undead was conceived as he sat there watching David Bowie playing uh, The Width of a Circle, but no. Uh, also, uh, what else, what else, what else? Oh, this, this is a good one. This is a good one. David Bowie's bass guitarist, Trevor Boulder, who was one of the spiders from Mars, you know, in the classic Ziggy Stardust period, used to tell this story. He sadly died a few years ago himself, Trevor. But, uh, yeah, when the Bowie and the band went on top of the pops to do the Gene Genie, which is a piece of a clip that you may have seen, um, it was at the beginning of 1973, January, right just after New Year, and um, in those days, BBC Television Centre was like a world of, you know, everything that was going on at once was going on, you know? And it just so happened that somewhere else in Television Centre, they were putting the finishing touches to Doctor Who and the Planet of the Daleks, a John Pertwee episode, just making it time, and Trevor um, said, you know, basically after they'd done Top of the Pops, they all trogged off to the BBC bar, as everyone did, and there was Katie Manning and John Pertwee and whoever sitting around, you know, they'd just finished shooting. Um, and so, so they all sort of sat around having a, having a drink together. And some passerby, seeing David Bowie and his band in all their outlandish glam rock makeup, uh, just sort of, and seeing them with, you know, John Pertwee, and just sort of, sort of innocently asked them if they were playing aliens in Doctor Who, <laughs> which they kind of practically were, actually, but they were just in a slightly different time. So that's a nice little but from that, moment. That, yeah, the angle uh, of maybe David Bowie being influenced by Doctor Who, but I mean, there is the Ziggy Stardust cover, and you've got the telephone yeah. box and things, you kind of, oh, that's oh absolutely, he's in a telephone box on the back cover of, oh no, definitely, there's no quit, I mean, I have, you know, this is something else that in my, in my sad researches I've discovered over the years, uh, is that absolutely, as a, as a, as a teenager and, and as a young man, uh, when he still lived in, in London, the whole time, you know, he moved to America in the mid 70s and kind of never fully came back after that. He came back occasionally. But when he was here, he absolutely watched Doctor Who. He definitely, you know, there's no question about it. Lots of, oh, here's another good one. Fraser Hines, who I'm sure you all know, played Jamie, um, sat next to David Bowie at a charity do at the Dorchester in 1967. This is before Bowie had had any great success, but he was already a young pop singer on the circuit in London and was doing this sort of thing and he sang a song at the this do and Fraser got up and gave us it was some sort of charity do. But anyway they were sat next to each other and the story that happened to be on, the Doctor Who story that happened to be on at that point was the Abominable Snowman, which is the first Yeti story set in Tibet. And David Bowie at the time, only aged about nineteen 1920, was uh, a great devotee of Tibetan Buddhism. He was massively into it at that point, as indeed a lot of people in 1967 were, you know, it was a kind of um, thing of the day. Uh, but David Bowie was massively into it. And the thing that Fraser remembers from that meeting is that Bowie uh, uh, turned to him and said, uh, and said, I'm very impressed by the Doctor Who that's on at the moment, and, and particularly, you've all, you're all pronouncing Padma Zambavar exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's David Bowie and Doctor Who in the Abominable Snowman. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> this is almost a show in itself, isn't it? Maybe we should do something on a podcast. <laughs> eight hours of this. Um, we're getting to the end of this this interview, I'm afraid. Uh, but then there is a raffle afterwards. We were trying not to make it a raffle of doom for too long. Sorry. I was about to say that we've got. We, we thought we'd ended ended up with something quite quite exciting, a little bit different. And uh, you know, sorry, chap, it's back to uh, Nick again. So, um, sorry. would you like to explain what this is all about? Yeah, I'll try and explain this as quickly as I can. Sorry, this is very self-indulgent because it's not entirely well, not entirely sort of at all to do with Doctor Who. Uh, but uh, I thought it might interest you. Yeah, something else that I've been writing recently and is shortly to emerge upon the world, um, so you're getting a sneak preview of it here, is uh, with a, a friend of mine who I've known for many years, a very, very fine musician called David Palfreman, um, I've been working on, on a concept album, 
Uh, it's called Decades. It's a double album. It's coming out. Um, we haven't got the exact release date yet because we're just waiting to find out how long it's going to take them to press the vinyl. Uh, but hopefully, it's going to be coming out in about April, May, something like that this year. Um, and it's Dave's wonderful songs with Dave singing some of them and various other people on various other tracks. Uh, and it's it's a concept album about an old man looking back on his life. And all the triumphs and disasters that, that and my role in it, uh, apart from working on the songs with Dave, was to write the uh, narrative. Little, there are little scenes in between the songs. It's not a great big radio play with the occasional song. It's it's very much an album, but there are little talky bits in between. And I wrote and directed those. I managed to get together a wonderful cast, including a couple of people who have Doctor Who connections. Actually, that wonderful actor David Warner who um, I'm sure you know from many, many things, but he was in the Ice Warrior episode of Doctor Who. It was a Cold War as the, as the professor. Um, but David Warner, star of the greatest decapitation scene in cinema history in, in the early, uh, and many, many other things besides. Um, and Jacqueline Pierce, who played Serverland in Blake 7, uh, she's in it on the album as well. Um, she was in Doctor Who as well, of course, in The Two Doctors, wasn't she, as Chassini. Uh, and a guy called Simon Greenall, who, as well as being the voice of those irritating meerkats, uh, in the commercials, is also in Love and Monsters. He's the kind of middle-aged guy in the gang of fans of the Doctor Who get together. You know, that old, whatever his name is, Mr. something like that. And he's also Alan Partridge's insane Georgie <laughs> friend, uh, yeah. Ma Ma Michael. Michael, yeah, he's on the album too. As are various other people. Lovely actor called Richard Coyle, who was in Coupling, a very fun young actor called Edward Holton, who uh, was in an episode of Sherlock many years ago, played uh, as a young boy, and he played Oliver in the West End. He's 17 now, a uh, very fine upcoming actor, uh, who you actually also cast in Treasure Island for Big Finish, didn't you? But I'm digressing massively. Anyway, so this album's coming out, and uh, we hope that it'll be a, a great success. Um, it's called Decades, and if you are interested in it, you can go over to the website, decadesthealbum.com. There's not much there at the moment, but you can sign up for a mailing list, but it'll all start kicking off quite soon. But anyway, to get to the point, uh, <laughs> the, first, uh, the first single off this album is called We All Fall Down, and it's one of the ones that's sung by one of the guest vocalists. It's sung by a fantastic lady called Sarah Jane Morris, who has done many wonderful things over the years, but uh, some of you may remember her as uh, the biggest sort of hit that she was ever involved in was the Biggest, I believe, the biggest selling single of 1986, Don't Leave Me This Way by the Communards and Sarah J. Morris. She was the lady on it, if anyone remembers that song. Um, I'm going to quickly interrupt you because yes. I have to take Joseph Blitzer back to the train. Because I've literally been talking that <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just realised what time it's and it's insanely yeah. rude at the no, 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 okay. so I do apologise and I will, uh, I will We're very good back in about half an hour. Um, and then I go, so, um, so yeah, uh, so this song is sung by uh, Sarah Jane Morris, who's a fantastic singer, and anyway, when it came to shooting a video uh, of it, my lovely friend Dave said, you'll do that, won't you, Nick? You'll direct the video. And I thought, oh, okay, never directed a pop video before, so all very exciting. So anyway, finally getting to the point, um, we went and shot this video down here on Dartmoor um, a while ago, and this will be coming out quite soon. So. Uh, oh, yeah, well, actually, yes, there's a Doctor Who connection as well. It was uh, shot on uh, on Hound Tor on Dartmoor, where uh, the Fontaran experiment was shot many years ago. So, anyway, it's only three minutes long, and it is called We All Fall Down, and here it is at last. Well, that's uh, Nicholas Pegg's song going on in the background. I'm here with Annika Wills. Hello. 
local almost, uh, hence why you're here in Exeter. Yes. Um, look, I always try and ask people about things that I don't usually hear them talking about in other circumstances, so I'm going to try and pick your brain and go back to the 1960s. We'll talk a little bit about Power of the Daleks in a minute. But um, when you joined the cast of Doctor Who, the Doctor Who girls, up to that point, had generally been on their first television job. Whereas you actually had, what, 10 or 15 years of a career behind you. You'd been working quite a bit. You'd been in a lot of things. You'd been in the Avengers, for example. But you'd also been a child lead in several things, too. Did you get the impression, because this is something that never really comes up, but did you get the impression that you'd actually been cast into Doctor Who as a bit of a star in your own right to try and bring that kind of interest over to the programme? I don't know. I don't know. I only know that, in a way, we we all of us were like... There was like a sort of rep company of um, television actors, um, young television actors, who were constantly employed. There were about, like, a hundred of us yeah. who were constantly employed. Um, and... And um, and one thing was that we were able to do it because the te- technical thing yeah. at that time was quite tricky. And so having started, well, I made my first film when I was 10. And then I went to um, one of the big um, major stage schools in London. And so then, and from there, I was in television the whole time, which is why I can't do sums now I can't do sums because I was never I never did any academic stuff I no. was always on the telly well, so you were constant constantly from on the, the age telly. of 10 constantly much, on the telly um, so I think now I'm so old I can look back and say without any kind of ego to say I think I had a sort of light you know that 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 was attractive oh um, no question so you know so so um so then I would be constantly cast so the curious thing was that I would go up for roles and I would think well, I'll probably get that, and I usually probably did. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, yeah. Because if they wanted somebody like me, then they got me. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. You know, well and the most interesting thing, well, not the most interesting, mm. but a particularly interesting thing that happened afterwards, yeah. after Doctor Who, a lot of the yeah. girls after Doctor Who seemed to struggle a bit yeah. to get another major yeah. role of any yeah. kind. More or less the next thing you did after Doctor Who was you were one of the twin leads in Strange Report. Yes. So obviously, um, yes, you know, yes. Doctor Who wasn't any kind of a hindrance on your career. No, no, not at all. No, not at all. Um, and, you know, and then the Avengers and the Saints. So I was having a wonderful time, yeah. you know, doing all these lovely shows. And then there was the wonderful Strange Report with Anthony Quayle. Oh, yeah. Who was such a brilliant actor. And we Somebody filmed Somebody lent that. me the box set a few years oh, it's ago. Lovely, and I watched through the whole it's thing so in two good, days. It? It's great. Um, and now Network have cleaned it all up. Yeah. And if you go back, I don't because I can't bear watching myself. But, but, um, but I have heard from people. It is lovely because that's the 60s. You know, that's how it looked. Yeah. Now we go back and we say, oh, my God, there were hardly any cars on the road. Was that well, how yeah. it was? That's how it was. You know? Actually, looking back at those old Doctor Whos, particularly the ones yeah. around the time you were in, yeah. Doctor Who's one of those programmes. It's about all sorts of different things, takes place in all sorts of different places, but actually you watch the old ones and it gives you a real feel of the times. Yeah, yeah. London, you and Ben. London at the time. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you and um, Michael Craze <laughs> came yes. in, yes. and you had very definitely been cast to represent the 1960s in yeah, Doctor Who. Yeah, we had. Because prior to that, you know, the companions would be taken from the future or the yes. past. Yes. But you, and your first story, there's a, a scene in a nightclub and all sorts of things. Yes. Now that you look back on it, you've got the weight of hindsight and given how many of these events you do and the kind of people you mix with and you see all the other people who played companions as well you get more of an impression now of where you fit into the scheme of things but when you were cast then were you aware of where you were sort of fitting into the sort of world of Doctor Who? No, not really, because um, although I knew of Doctor Who, of course, and because my husband at the time, Michael Goff, had played the Celestial Toymaker, yeah. so I had watched those, but actually I knew nothing really about Doctor Who. I had young children, babies, and so, so, so you know, um, when the show went out and there was no recordings, that would be a time when I would be putting kids to bed, so I didn't watch Doctor Who. So I had no idea of, of, of the backlog, you know, the, yeah, the yeah. backstory of all the other companions. Nothing. I just came in. Okay, good. They want me. Um, they, I can wear my own clothes. It's very good, <laughs> you know. You know right, and I'll do the best I can, you know. So, yeah, I knew nothing about it at all. And now that you are involved in, you know, because in the last few years particularly, yeah. but yeah. ever since about maybe the 1980s, conventions yeah. and all these sort of appearances have been a big thing. Yeah. And now that you have become friends with a lot of the yeah. other people who were, worked on the programme... Yeah. Is it a really strange thing that you've sort of gone from being a person who was in the programme to, in, to a certain degree, becoming like a fan of the programme because you're being asked to think about something, a job that you did once for a year. Nobody else in any other profession ever gets asked to think back sort of 40 or 50 years to something like that. Have you become a sort of a, a fan, to put it one way, of that programme? and? Is it sort of something that's sort of become a part of your life in that way? Absolutely, absolutely. And so, yes, it was lovely to be found because I went off and did other things and um, well, then I was the world, found, I've been around the world and then they found me um, to go back and that was amazing. Um, and to know that it was still going on, that was amazing. And then to meet up all the other companions, that was lovely. It was like... With us a family here. Yeah, an but then family, when it came yeah. back on the screens, that was completely exciting. And so I'm sitting in my little cottage in Dartmoor, Dartmoor um, watching Christopher Eccleston and thinking, hum, the, the sofa is against the wall. There's nowhere to hide. And this is frightening all over again. It was true. It was true. Because those early episodes, was, that was quite spooky and quite frightening and full on. Um, and from that point on, I became a fan. Absolutely. A fan of the new show. Yeah. And, and loving it and supporting it. And because um, I've become part of the world, it's so lovely. It's, you know, it's like a huge family. We're like a huge family. We are. It really is, Because we yeah. go around the world. We're doing the conventions. We meet up with each other. And we support each other through all of life's, you know, Debbie Watling, you know, we're, we're all getting older now and life takes different twists and turns. And so there we are, well, seven, us companions, yeah. loving and supporting each other. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Well, Janet Fielding and yeah. Fraser Hines yeah. particularly have both had You know, and Liz Layton going yeah, and, yeah. and Caroline John going, you know. So, yeah, yeah, we're like a big family with, with um, losses and, and support and... Love, really. It's love. Yeah, it's yeah. love. That's what it is. It's well, you all share loving. something 
that yes. you know a lot of other people special. wouldn't understand because very special because to have been in the program and then fifty years later, forty years later, thirty whatever for whichever one to to have been a part of that program because there are no other programs that no, have a, a no. fandom like it's this. It's totally and, unique. Mm. And the other thing I love is kind of coming and going out of England and coming back into England. Um, Anybody, taxi drivers, anybody, anybody, you, you say, oh, well, I used to be a doctor who. Like, oh, yeah, you say, okay, go on, so who was your doctor? Everybody in England knows exactly and always remembers their doctor, whether yeah. they later became fans or not. But as children and growing up, they all, they all say, no, no, I'm, I'm Tom Baker. You can always, t- you know, you can, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can date them. I'm a Peter Davison. No, I'm a Sylvester McCoy. Those are the younger ones, you know. <laughs> Do you get many, I'm a Patrick Trout and then? Rarely, no, no, rarely. And that these would be the older people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who and but what I love is that the respect for Patrick, that all the pre- later doctors, Matt Smith, David Tennant, they all refer to Patrick Troughton's performance yeah. as the as the one, <clears throat> the one. And that brings us to the Power of the Daleks because when you now watch the Power of the Daleks, the the um, the animation, the, the animation, yeah. um, but you hear his voice. This is Patrick Troughton, the wonderful actor, who is coming in um, nervously, and not that he wanted to do it, but then they've actually made him do it. Uh, we can keep going. Yeah, um, no, it's fine. Um, bringing his absolute awe to this role. You don't see Patrick Troughton do anything like that. He just gave it his all. And when you listen to the to his voice in the Power of the Daleks, it's haunting. It's 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 yeah, haunting is the is really the way it describes it. It's absolutely astounding. Astounding. It's, it's a really weird thing actually to do to have done a job which you thought was really ephemeral, would go out and never yeah. be seen again. Yeah. Yeah. And then fifty years later yeah. to be listening back to recordings yeah. of it and seeing okay, so it's a different thing seeing an animation of it and that yeah. must be weird enough in itself. But yeah. the fact that people are still watching it and that those is, recordings still he exist. He loves it, I'm telling you. I'm telling you guys out there. He's sitting on his cloud going, Ooh, this is very good. Ah, <laughs> you know. I mean, he'd be chuffed a bit because in those days we didn't even watch our own shows because no, we were. Couldn't. It was going out on the night when we were recording the next one. Yeah. So wow. I never watched it. So we never watched Mike, Michael Craze and I, who played Michael, who played Ben. Um, we never watched our performances. We never saw it. I never saw them. Wow, that's a only shame. the ones that have been kept. Do you? Do you see? Do you then? I mean, you said a few minutes ago you don't like watching back your old performances, no, but do you get tempted into watching some of those old Doctor Who's, the ones that do still exist? Not really, no. No, fair no, enough. Because it was another life, you see. And what what you do is you go back, and it's disturbing. Um, so in a way, it's like sort of pulling out an old um, photo album, and you look at old photographs, and you think, yeah. oh God. Oh, you know, and you remember, oh, no, it's, oh, no, no, better be, to be here now. It's, oh, fair it's enough. My, my meditation, be here now. <laughs> well, another question on that, though. Yeah. A few years ago, they found The Underwater Menace, yes. episode two, which yes. was the, uh, and remains the earliest existing back of Trouton. Yes. What did it feel like when that was found? Because it had been yes. many years since... Yeah. Any episode had been found, let alone one of yours. Yes, well, was that no, exciting? That was, it was exciting. And also, of course, I was forced to watch it because we were all in Cardiff, I think, oh, yeah. and there was Stephen Moffat and there was Fraze was sitting there with me. So I had to watch that, couldn't, couldn't avoid it. And so then 
Yes, rather sort of charming and and quite sort of sweet and no, it's no. I, I'm saying that it's a, that's about everybody else. About yourself, you think. Oh dear, you know. You do. Yeah, you know, you, do. you might think that. I don't think do. anybody else agrees. No, 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 you do, you do. Yeah. I don't know. You know, do you like looking at pictures of yourself when you were twenty? Well, I do you... tend to avoid having pictures of myself well, taken. Generally speaking, you see, we don't. We don't. No. it's the same thing. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fair it's enough. It's the same thing. Um, going back to your career. After Strange Report, you just stopped dead and completely left the industry. I did. Was that a very conscious decision? It was. Was the decision more about the industry or more about the other thing that you wanted to do? No, it was absolutely that my marriage was on the rocks and because my husband was very jealous of everybody I worked with, Michael Goff. And um, so it was... And I thought... If I go to the country and if I stop acting and if I stop working with all these lovely fellas that he gets so jealous of, maybe I can save my marriage. And so that's what I did. And you did save your marriage, didn't you? No, it fell to pieces anyway after sort of nine years. Oh, did it? Yeah, it did anyway. But... um, but I, yeah, I made, and then from there, oh, that's when you I went then travelling, went I forward guess. and went off to yeah. India and went in search of my soul. <laughs> Do you think you made the right decision? It had to be then? done. I don't have any regrets because um, I'm happy now. Yeah. So you know, so um, and you, in spite of the fact that you walked away from the industry, you still had a full enough life afterwards. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, in a way, um, um, you can't. I, you can't go back and say, oh, if I... I don't, anyway, go back and say, if I'd made a different decision then, maybe... No, no, who I am now is a happy person. So everything I've done up to this point is good, and I love it. Somebody's waving and looking and... Yeah. Oh, what? What? We can stop it. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, wow. Oh, lovely. That's okay. Bless your heart. I'll get out of your hair now. No, that's okay. I think that was a good point to end anyway. We're nearly done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, No regrets. No No regrets. Um, I I think that was a really good point to stop, actually. So, Annika, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Would you like a chucky? I'm with Joe Lidster, Big Finish, and TV writer, and theatre writer, and writer of all sorts of things. Hello. You've written Torchwood, you've written the Sarah Jane Adventures, you've written Wizards vs. of Aliens. Yeah. All of which were Russell T. Davis things. Mm. Well, my question about that, and we'll see where it goes after that, how much contact do you have with Russell, and how much contact do you have instead with somebody like Phil Ford or Chris Chibnall? Because Russell's in overall Mm. charge of those programmes, but with him being doing Doctor Who and stuff at the same time, I guess there has to be a certain amount where he's sort of devolving to other people. I think on my Torchwood, I vaguely remember him being there all the time, but that was because it was my first one and because it was Series 2 of Torchwood. Sarah Jane, he was there a lot. I mean, you know, he was he was often there. With Sarah Jane, I I remember him reading... I remember meeting him about one draft and he'd not read, he'd not been at the meeting about the previous draft. So I knew, so there was a time when he wasn't at every meeting, but he, I mean, he just worked so much. He was at everything. Um, Wizards, he wasn't there for a lot of the second year because he was in LA by then. Um, <coughs> and also me. his boyfriend was ill at the time. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think, uh, no, I think that was before his boyfriend was ill. Um, cause oh, right. they were in LA and then he came back. Um, mm. 
So, yeah, no, he was there a lot. He was very, you know, in control. He, you know, they were his shows. Um, yeah, yeah. Even, you know, and they were Chris Chibnall shows and Phil Ford shows and everything like that. But they were Russell T. Davis and he was there. He was making sure it was all... All so, working. So what was the working relationship like? Because I've got the impression that Russell T. Davis had a very different working relationship than what you'd find in other TV programmes. It's just... I mean, you're, you're working with a genius, yeah. with Russell T. Davis. You're working with a... Possibly the cleverest man I've ever met. Possibly one of the funniest men I've ever met. One of the most truthful men I've ever met. Um, I remember on my... First, Sarah Jane, he read, he came into a meeting, and that's how I remember it, because he hadn't been on the, in the previous meeting. He came in and laughing said, this is the second worst first draft of anything I've ever read. <laughs> yes. And that could have killed me, but he was so honest and so humor, humorous with it. And then we just went through and worked out all the problems. And then the next draft, he went, this is brilliant. And then I remember on my third Sarah Jane, he said something like, or, or my second Sarah Jane, he came in and went, this is one of the best first drafts I've ever read. And you knew that he was being honest because you knew he wasn't afraid to be honest with you at any time, other time. Yeah. Um, so he was great for that. He was, it was just, it, it was that thing where he's, it's quite tricky to sort of argue notes with him because he's so brilliant that you, you just think, no, you absolutely know. Whereas on other things, even though you're working with brilliant people, you know, as a writer, you should argue notes. You shouldn't argue all the notes. That's the thing. You know, you should know that most of the notes, 90% of the notes are correct. But there will be notes that you'll go, no, you're wrong. Or, oh, wait, no, I've got it wrong. But actually what I'm trying to say is that you've misread it or I've not, I've not done it properly. And with Russell, it's slightly hard to do that because you just sit there and go, you're a genius. Um, I don't actually know if I can ever do that. But then I did do that. As, I, as we went on, I was able to say to him, no, I, I think this is what I'm trying to do. And he'd go, sometimes he'd go, nope, you're wrong. Listen to me. And sometimes he'd go, oh, no, that's right. Okay, right. Okay, so what you've got wrong is to get to that. Um, do you ever find that difficult then? Because when you work in TV, and with Big Finish as well, you, and from what I've heard from other people, hmm. you're kind of given the stories to do. So do you find it difficult to work to other people's kind of plots and um, ideas? I didn't, I, that didn't really happen for me much. I mean, there would, you'd get a, a beginning. You'd usually get given what we want this story to be. So we yeah. want it to be... But it was Yanto originally, but we want it to be them coming to terms of being dead but alive. Um, with Sarah Jane, it was, we want you to take Clyde on an emotional journey with his dad. Um, and he, with that one, he wanted a road trip. Um, that was literally it on, on most of them. And on, but as it went on and on, and you became more and more part of the team, it was much more, you'd have a, uh, like a, a, a meeting full of everybody, you know, all the writers and Russell and the script editor, and we'd all sit there and go, like, well, what type of stories do you want to tell? How are we going to push this? Where do we want to go? Um, and what type of story do you want to tell? Uh, and, and that. So yeah, no, normally, um, you have, uh, quite a lot of say in, in, yeah. you know, in what you're doing. Well, one of the other things <clears throat> that I think people perhaps don't realize is that you've also worked a bit with Stephen Moffat as well. Yes, on, on the Sherlock websites. Yeah, the Sherlock, yeah. Uh, so yeah, did the Sherlock, the John Watson's blog. And then I've just done the Sherlock Live thing I did just before Christmas, which was a Twitter thing about Sherlock. Um, although I didn't work with Stephen so much on that, except on the night it went out. 
Um, but no, with the blogs, it was um, Stephen was there for a bit. Um, I worked more with Sue Virtue on on those. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know Stephen socially, and yeah, no, he's great. Again, he, you know, you you are in a room with someone who absolutely knows what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you just, you know try and absorb some of that and I think actually a lot of it is you just sit there and try and watch them work and go actually you know right they know what they're doing I can get some of that um, but yeah no I've been very lucky to sort of have worked with him as well what do you find a big difference between the two um uh the, the, it's quite tricky to say but I, I'd say the sense, humor, right. the, the, the sense of humour the sense of humour um because we were t- Rob was talking on the stage just now about the sort of mental process as a writer goes mm. through, and you were too, and it strikes me that every writer, and you're talking about these people and their producers mm. as well, obviously, but writing is their principal thing, that there must be a point where everybody that you've worked with has a particular way of doing things. Well, I think I've read somewhere that, Stephen is a nine to five writer. Stephen is a sits down at nine o'clock, finishes at five o'clock. He is very much like that. Whereas Russell, I think, is a bit more like me, and he's a bit more not he's like me, but he he has that much more major panic, doesn't do anything for a day, and then suddenly will can write everything in three hours on a night. Yeah. Um, but no, the difference between them mostly is their sense of humour. Um, just Russell is much more. He's Welsh and he's yeah. big and he's like oh, oh, oh Joe and Stephen's much drier and and sort of sardonic, um, but they're both. I mean, they're both just brilliant to work for. You you know, I'm just very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, speaking of lucky, that kind of nicely segues into my next question. Uh-huh. One of the things about writing TV Doctor Who, and okay, you've not actually done television Doctor mm. Who, but you've done just about everything, everything else, else around yeah. it. One of the things about that is you tend not to get employed unless you've already done television. But your trajectory was you started with Big Finish and you're one of the few people who's kind of made that leap up into television yeah. through Big Finish. That is kind of lucky, but also it's very telling about how talented these people think you are. Do you think you're lucky? Have you worked really hard for it? And I have worked very hard. I mean, I did. I mean, I find it... You do find as you get older, it's slightly harder to do it all. I mean, certain, but I was in my 20s. I mean, I had an office job. I went out every night because it was a very social environment. I, but I was also writing script after script for Big Finish. Yeah. And, and you do have to work hard to do it. Um, and then, yeah, I was, you know, very lucky Gary Russell suggested me for, for Torchwood. Um, so I think it's both. I mean, there are elements of luck. Um, I got the first non-Big Finish writing I got was actually on the Doctor Who websites. And I don't know if I'd have got that if I'd been in a pub on a certain night. James Goss came up to me and said how much he'd liked one of my scripts. Uh, and that led to um, him saying, actually, we're looking for a writer for the websites. Um, and that helped contribute towards me getting to Torchwood because yeah. it meant that Russell and BBC Cardiff already knew who I was. Um so yeah, there are elements of both, but yeah, you do have to. We you have know, to make your own luck. You have to. You have to make your own luck, and you you have to work hard on it. And you and you have to um, learn how to be a writer. You have to sort of learn that people aren't giving you notes for the fun of it. And if people are giving you notes, nine times out of ten, those notes are right. And you need to lose your ego. And you they have, have a vision either. of what they want. They have a vision they? of what they want, but also sometimes you know it's it's about the actual writing. 
process and it's you know that scene isn't clear well if that scene isn't clear that scene isn't clear they're not telling you that for fun they're telling you it because it isn't clear and it needs to be clear um well that leads is there a huge difference between writing for big finish and writing for television um it, i think you know, but because technically the there's a difference in that you know with big finish you're, you're dealing with usually one script editor and one producer you do three drafts and that's probably about it with tv you're dealing with um, script editor, executive producer, producer, blah, blah, blah. Then you get notes from the BBC, you get notes from this person, you get notes from that person, you get notes from, because of the budget, you can't do this because yeah. of actor availability, you can't have that actor in those scenes. And, and so, so it's a much more complicated thing, um, oh, for TV. Well, but the actual writing process for me isn't that different. Um, um, and well, one of the reasons I ask is you talk about making things clear with mm. Big Finish, you could t- sort of talking less so now but when you first started doing it you're sort of talking to a captive audience mm. whereas with tv you've got to constantly remind yourself that the people who are watching are not fans, fans yeah. of the franchise mm. and you need to make sure everything is really clear yeah. for them does, does that make a big difference to how you approach it not not does make a huge difference i mean for me it's just i think the worst thing the worst thing a piece of writing can be is boring um, it might not be my cup of tea. I might watch something, uh, you know, my Doctor Who. I might watch a Doctor Who episode and think, I hated that, but it wasn't boring. I think the worst thing a piece of writing can be is boring, and that's across the board, whether you're doing Big Finish, Captive Audience, or whether you're doing TV. Um, you know, you just put joke after joke. You put scare after scare in it. You put yeah. surprises in it. You make the characters the most wonderful, likeable people in the world, and then you do bad things to them, so they cry, so the audience are crying. It's all about that for me. It's all about that emotional connection, so that regardless of whether it's audio or TV or a book or whatever, is that people are, they can't switch it off. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no way you could switch this off because you need to know what's going to happen to these people. Do you find you should put yourself in the position of the characters then? Yeah, yeah, That's all the time, yeah. Um, I, it's why I, I, I like flawed characters. It's quite often um, I will argue that, you know, so if you're writing kids' TV, there's quite often a baddie in it. And I will be like, from the baddie's point of view, going, well, actually, they can't be, they're not a baddie in their own heads. What do they want? What, why are they doing this? And, and sometimes I would argue, and, you know, certainly on that kind of Hetty Feather, for example, there's a, there's a girl who's a bit of a bully. And I always am pushing her to go the other way because I'm like, well, there's no reason for her to be obnoxious in this scene. So I can, you know, she is a horrible person at times, but she's not going to be horrible for no reason unless she needs to be, you know. So, um, yeah, it's quite often it's just working on that, that sort of, just making them interesting. Right, one more question, because we're mm-hmm. standing out in the cold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're here in Exeter. Yes, lovely Exeter. Everybody else who's here, I know what their connections with Exeter are. Do you have an Exeter connection? No, um, no. my boyfriend's brother went to university here, so I actually came here and watched Pirates of Penzance here a year ago at this university. Um, no, they just messaged me on Twitter. Uh, I know all the other guests very well, um, Barney, Rob and Nick, so... I don't know if they suggested me, but um, no, Evan, um, who runs it, uh, just uh, sent me a message on Twitter. And um, I was like, yeah, why not? Sounds like fun. And it has been fun. It's been great. And you're here on one of the coldest days of the year. Yes, it has been cold, though. Arriving in the snow this morning was a joy. (laughs) Well, thanks, Joe Lidston, for sharing all that with us. And let's get back in the war. Yes. (laughs) Well, I'm here now with Rob Shearman. Hello. Um, Rob, yes. the reason you're in Exeter is because you have an Exeter connection. I do. I was at university here for 
oh, when was it? The late eighties to early nineties. So I mean, my my first term was spent watching Sylvester McCoy um, in his final series, um, going over to, as a fresher to a uh, mature student uh, called Nicholas Pegg. Uh, we currently were Doctor <laughs> Who fans together, so I used to go and watch the episodes there. And of course, Nick later on became a Dalek on the TV series. So yeah, I mean, it's it, it's odd to be back because Nick played the Dalek in your episode. Didn't no, it was Barnaby, oh, who, right. who okay, was also yeah. at university at the same time. So the odd thing about it is that we all, the three of us, Barney, Nick, and me, were, we were all in charge at one point of student theatre, and in fact, we all um, year by year directed the. Um, the uh, the big shows at the Northcott Theatre, and so it was very very odd that years later we were all doing Dalek stuff together. You know, well you know, well over fifteen years later, really. I mean, it's very very strange. What a bizarre thing. It is odd, and it is, it's it's funny to be back. It, it's it's nice. It's it makes me feel like a child. Well, talking about um, things from before Doctor Who, and also you were talking a bit about your writing since Doctor Who. Yeah. I've got a question to ask you. Okay. The reason I'm asking this is because I want to start this up as a rumour rather than because it actually already is a rumour. Because I'm playing the next Doctor. No, it's true that you're adopted and that your actual parents were, uh, well, you were the result of an illicit relationship between Harold Pinter and Roald Dahl that took place in 1968. No, actually, it was Terry Nation and Jerry Davis. Oh, Um, yeah. People didn't know that they were a couple. um, (laughs) And the thing is, it was really hard at home because they were constantly arguing about which had made, made the better monster. And, of course, everyone knew it was really Robert Holmes with the Sontarans. I, mean, I, I couldn't say anything. They would slap me around a bit if I brought up anything except Dykes and Sidemen at my home. Um, yeah. Um, no, it isn't actually true. It isn't honestly true. That but I guess was, it, I mean, well, it, it ought to be true, unfortunately. I've read a couple of your books, and it's... Yeah. And they're, it, they're they, quite dark, aren't they? Yeah, but what, yeah. But what they do is they... Match the mundanity yeah. of, say, a Harold Pinter, where there's a sort of dark humour, but there's also a very sort of yeah, a very sort of mundane. There's a strange level. menace to Pinter. Pinter's, yeah. a, Pinter's a massive influence actually on me because because my background was writing theatre, and when I was at at school in my final year at school, uh, there was a cast of four, and we did a Pinter play, one of Pinter's short plays called The Collection, yeah. and every single member of that cast including people like David Walliams was in the cast as well. We all went on in our own ways to become professional people in the arts within a two, yeah. two years. It was, a, I think for all of us, actually, it was like a sudden recognition that there was a real rhythm to writing and a real rhythm to, yeah, to yeah. finding underlying tension. So Pinto's, a, yeah, Pinto's actually a massive influence, as is Roald Dahl as well. well I was going to so say, that's right. the other thing. There's, yeah. kind of, there's that sort of mundane menace of Pinto tied to the sort of... Bizarre imagination of Roald Dahl. Yeah. That's, that's the signature oh, well, of your you. writing. Thank you very between much. Between those two, um, I'm. I, I must. I, I think Roald Dahl's great, and it's not just for the. I mean, everyone he loves. The Germans. Um, yeah, and but, but in a funny way, also, you know, you it depends when you grew up. So different children. Because, for example, I was too old for Matilda, which I think is now. I think he's probably his most popular. Book. Yeah, probably. Because I'd moved on at that point to his short stories and books like Kiss Kiss and Someone Like You and that's actually what I mean just how entertaining they are yeah I just short stories have this reputation for being actually quite hard work 
my wife, for example, bless her heart, is not a big short story reader. She finds them, she thinks that they just that they require a lot of effort to try and find your way into them all the time, and that they often excuses for people to be a bit pretentious. And it was reading Roald Dahl and just the way in which he grips you from the beginning and teases you, and and, the, and it's full of this sort of dark, sardonic humour. And yeah, I mean, Roald Dahl has always been someone that I would love in some ways to pretend I could be as good as. Oh, well. I mean, I'm not, but, but, <laughs> but, he, but he is wonderful. Yeah. Well, you were talking wonderful. on stage, and sadly, I didn't record it. I thought somebody else was. You were talking on stage about, well, and this struck a chord with me. Yeah. Is, although I don't write a lot of fiction, I've written some. And you were talking about if you write a line now oh, it's or if true. you write the line in half yeah. an hour's time it'll be a completely well, different it, line it's sort of what I because I, I, I talk occasionally to students um, I mean I was resident writer at Edinburgh Napier University for a year and it meant that I had, I had, my, I had my name on a door on a campus people would you know, knock on the door and come and see me as this as this working writer which was quite funny really and over, across the year the students were trooping and at some point they would just admit that they felt they didn't really think they were ever writers and they would say to me you know when when do you start believing you're a writer and I said as is true I still don't and most writers I know still don't and there are reasons for that and I think in part it's because as I was saying the difficulty you have is that you can prepare and prepare and you know what your story is about you know what your characters are doing but the moment you write anything down it's always spontaneous because what you would write half an hour later after a cup of coffee will be different. And it's the fact that as you're writing it, you know you're still making it up as you go along, that it's still not something that you could actually prepared properly. No matter how much you planned. But makes you therefore feel that you don't know what you're doing. Mm. The fact that, that you know that any great sentence that you might have come up with is just luck. It's always luck. Anything which is actually good. The problem is you can have great ideas for stories... And the difference between a great idea for a story and a story that actually works. And believe me, I mean, I've written some stories which I think were great ideas but haven't really been quite as good as they should have been. And it was all because I wrote them at the wrong minute. Yes. And it's so upsetting. And other stories you write and they just happen to click and you think that line just happens to have a real burst to it. Mm. But it wouldn't have... But, you know, but a minute before I wouldn't have written that line. I might have had the same idea as that line... And that's part of the trouble with it. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that random element which makes most writers feel that therefore they're only pretending to know what they're doing. But the truth is that every single writer that I ever speak to admits exactly the same thing. That, and it takes some of the fear out of it if you admit it. I think part of the trouble with encouraging people to write is that we still kind of, most of us, believe in this mysticism to it that... You know, I mean, you, you hear people in interview. I mean, I'll, I mean, I'm guilty of it. You know, you say, well, and I wrote this book, and then I thought, what I should do for my next book is plan this and this and this. And that's partially true, but it also makes it sound like you always know what you're doing, and it means other people coming up to do anything assume that they should as well. And it's always random. It's, it's always random. It's about the only job, if you can consider it a job, yeah. that you can't actually sit down and say, right, this is what I need to do, and yeah. this is how I go about doing I, it. I will go out. I mean, sometimes it's awful, because the worst thing is if you're writing a chapter or a short story or something, or even a script, um, and you will say, oh, I'm tired, I need to go home now. 
I mean, you, you, about 7pm, I'll be working at the South Bank and I'll suddenly say, well, I could stay another two hours and get through the next section or I could just sit on it and think about it first. And if you wrote it now, it will probably be several thousand words shorter than if you sit on it and think about it for the next day. And it's and sometimes you you overwrite because you've you've not grasped the net at the wrong at the right moment, and other times you've not explored an idea properly because you didn't sit on it for longer. Mm. Most of it's about it's, it's a bit like cooking. It's a compromise. Um, yeah, constantly. and the hardest thing. And, and when I was you know a really young writer, I didn't care about it at all. I mean, I would be here at Exeter University. I was writing. I don't know. It seemed to me at times. I think I wrote about ten plays in one year. Wow! Because I didn't think them through. I just wanted to write. Yeah. You know, the actual joy of writing was more important than thinking about it. And so, a lot of it is about knowing when not to start, knowing that it's not ready yet. Mm. But the problem is, is that if you wait too long, it goes off the boil, yeah. and it loses its point. And it's the hardest thing about writing. I think is always. Just knowing, no, now is the time I have to start it. Do you know, even just writing a column for a magazine... Oh, God, yeah, exactly, exactly the same. It's exactly I, the I same. will have the idea, and I'll say, right, I am not going to write a single word of this for at least three weeks, so that idea has percolated through yeah, my yeah, head yeah. for three yeah. weeks. And yet sometimes you'll wake up and... Um, I mean, I, I did an introduction for a really great book recently... Um, which I was very proud of the introduction, and I thought I wouldn't do it for another three weeks. And I suddenly got the how to yeah. write it in my head, and I sat down and wrote it. And I was so relieved it was out of the way, but also that it was it was the well, right what moment. You wanted it to be, yeah. But, I, but you sometimes just don't know. Sometimes things have to be very, very fast and spontaneous. Yeah. Other times you have to think about certain stories have been in my head and then come out years, literally years later. And it's it's. The fact that it's never an exact science. No. Sometimes it has to be fast, sometimes it doesn't. And if only you could tell, if only you could say, the way to write anything, a column, a short story, anything, is that you get the idea, and then nine months later you give birth to it. Every time that works. <laughs> you would just set, you, you know, you'd set your clock. You, you know, yeah. you, 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 you know, you'd put an alarm on. But it never is like that. And it means that, therefore, the idea of writing, which is such a silly job, because it makes you feel as you're doing it that this could be really meaningless. Actually, all really meaningful. It's somewhere well, precisely. between the Well, the two thing is, is also, is, is that you can't predict. I mean, this is what I find so funny about being at a convention like this as well, is that you're talking about work that inevitably that you did years and years before. But at the time you were writing it, it was still that random, spontaneous thing. And as you were doing it, you just thought maybe this will be the least memorable thing you've ever done. And, and you can never predict. I mean, you know, I, because I do write, you know, lots of short stories in book form. And, and you go into them and some years later get, you know, get anthologized quite a bit. They pick up the odd award, you know, these individual stories. But at the time you wrote them, you wouldn't have predicted that those are the ones that were going to yeah. catch on. Because mm. you can't tell. It, and, you know, it's and it, it makes you feel even more divorced from them because it's like you don't even know your own work's value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's um, it's awful. Well, on that subject, the one question that I'll ask about the thing that you've been asked about most in your entire life, oh, I yes. imagine. Yeah. Well, what was the weight of responsibility of writing an episode of Doctor Who like? Oh, then? it was it was difficult. Obviously, I mean, I think most people I know have written about. And they write about it like in a celebratory way, about the first day you sit down and you write, you know, in TARDIS, yes. which I got round by actually not having a TARDIS scene. Um, 
but the first day you start writing it and how exciting that is. But actually, it's also just that sense that this is actually, this is Doctor Who. And this is actually, what's hard about it is that it will be remembered, even if it's rubbish. Mm. Because I know from childhood, I could recite, I'm not going to, I, I mean, I could recite right now every single Doctor Who story title from William Hartnell to, to um, Peter Capaldi. And I, if, I, if I'm in a dentist, I do that to take my mind off the impending <laughs> pain. Um, so it means that if you write the worst Doctor Who story ever made, it won't vanish into, ignom- you know, into ignominy the way it ought to. It will still be the one that they, people still write about on Doctor Who forums forever saying, that's the worst story we've ever seen. So that, that sense of... Did you feel a pressure then to make it the most important? Or no, that? no, no. I mean, partly also because it wasn't my show. Mm. I mean, you go onto the show and you know it's Russell's at that point and you just don't want to be the worst. Mm. And you know that the people around you... I mean, you know, I'd be getting at that point scripts from the other writers and from Russell and you'd be amazed. I mean, I remember when I first read the first draft of Empty Child and Dr. Dances and I thought... And I just felt so jealous. And you just... I mean, but also... But at the same time... If you don't get on other shows, I mean, yeah, I, I felt jealous on other shows where I, well, you'd read them and you think, well, that's a lot better than mine, and you'd be really upset. But on Doctor Who, because I'm a Doctor Who fan, I'd be thinking, that's, I'm so jealous, but oh, that's so amazing. <laughs> I can't wait to see it. And in some ways, as you're writing it, yours, part of you thinks, I hope that this is good enough. But in some ways, I hope that everything else I get to see is even better. Yes. Because as a fan, yeah. I don't want to be limited by. The series limited by by my imagination. I want other people to have done this better. It's that odd thing that I mean. I've always you know people ask about because of things like Big Finish and Doctor Who books and stuff about canon, and my rather glib, jokey answer, but it's partially true, is I think everything's canon except my one, <laughs> because I can't believe that that's you know that the, yeah. the, 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 the that that inner twelve year old. Um, who watched Castrovalva and became a massive fan at that point and began, you know, uh, learning by heart the Doctor Who program guide by Jean-Marc Lefissier. Um, I can't accept that something which I made up can be as real as, that as all those other stories. Yeah, yeah. So I can accept that the other episodes either side of my one are real because that's Doctor Who. But my one is like, I don't know, that I won a competition on Blue Peter, and I just got to write a script which which no one can really count as canon. So I don't, you know, I mean, I, I, I know I did do it. I mean, I have the occasional still childhood dream the way I used to, where you think, oh, wouldn't it be great if I wrote Doctor Who one day? And I think, I did. Yeah, I did yeah. actually do it. And I think, yeah, but I didn't really, did I? Because cause, cause, cause I can't count it. You know, so it's weird. To, before it becomes real, you have to write two more stories so you can be in Radio Free Scarrow's miniscope. So you've got a challenge there. Two more stories. Two more Doctor Who stories. Yes. Really? They can go in Radio Free Scarrow's miniscope. They won't talk about anybody who's done less than three stories. Is that three televised stories? Yeah. I think that's unlikely to happen. <laughs> <laughs> One more question then, because yeah. obviously you've got, you've got to be off. Um, Bringing it back possibly to a fun question or maybe to the hardest question you've ever had to answer. Yeah. But on the subject of Doctor Who, yeah. what is it about Doctor Who? You know what? I mean, it's a really, really hard thing to answer because no one's ever got the answer right. No. Um, I, I occasionally find myself, when I'm sort of drifting off and I'm 
kind of recapturing what it was when I was suddenly caught and fell in love with the fact that I remember reading the making of Doctor Who from a friend at school. And the Malcolm Holt book. Yeah, and, yeah. and Terence oh, Dix yeah, as well. Yeah. And seeing all those different stories and reading the, the little synopses for the Crusade and the Space Museum. And for me, it's always been, because that's when I got into it, was 18 years into its run, that this was a show that was constantly in a state of evolution. And what I love about the show now is that whether I personally like every story or season or not, and I don't always because I'm a grumpy 47-year-old and I, I'm not meant to like all of it, what I find exciting is that I find it totally unpredictable within year by year how the show's going to be. It's not a question simply of how will it be under Christian rather than Stephen Moffat. I couldn't have predicted how Stephen would have done it differently two years apart because, it's, mm. because the show is constantly changing. It never, ever really stands still. And I think actually that that's what's so remarkable about it is that I would have expected when it came back in 2005 that that sense of natural evolution would have perhaps been taken away from it. That, you know, that the, the way that we do modern television would have been to have found a conveyor belt mechanism by which you say, this is the tone of what Doctor Who is, and it will always be this, the way that casualty is always casualty, or Holby City is always Holby City. Or even EastEnders. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and, and, and they subtly change, because they've been going on forever. But nevertheless, there is still a sense that if you watch an EastEnders episode from 10 years ago, you'd recognise it as still as, as EastEnders. Mm. Whereas you can watch Doctor Who from five years ago, and even if the same Doctor's in it, you won't recognise it as the same style at all. And I think it's something inbuilt with this show that because, you know, fictionally it can go anywhere in time and space, and yet strangely, metafictionally, to be pretentious, mm. it can do, it, it goes everywhere in terms of, I don't know, just in terms of the sort of the whole realm of storytelling. It's and, tone and identity. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's always a lie when people start saying that one of the great things about Doctor Who is that, you know, one week it'll be this and one week it'll be that, because it actually isn't like that. It's more that, you know, when Douglas Adams was doing it, the idea that stories which were made only two seasons later, like The, the, like the Visitation, could possibly have been in the same season as City of Death, because they couldn't have been. He would never have allowed it. And the fact that that means that the show isn't owned by anybody except collectively us, the people who keep on experiencing it, because it will always be something different. And if Doctor Who is still going in some form, and I think it will, um, when I'm dying, which will be, I'm planning, you know, in about 12 months, um, that's a so joke. Just yeah. have one last birthday just, before just, you go. So just, you know, just basically so I can just miss out on, on who the next Doctor is. But the, I, I just feel that at that stage, it would still be something which I couldn't, shouldn't be able to, to recognise in contrast to what I'm seeing now, mm. but would be recognising because I'm watching a slow evolution between them. It's a really, really ham-fisted answer to this. So no, I, I apologise. But it's, it's, I think that no other television show so obviously evolves. And what I found fascinating, although I couldn't have said that when I was a kid, I didn't know that was the reason. I loved the fact that it was an ever-changing history, not fictionally, but in but every other way as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it isn't the same programme, and yet it actually is. If you show a young fan, and, and I've seen it happen, I've, I've seen fans who get into it via Matt Smith 
watching a William Hartner episode and recognising, although it's completely different, nevertheless there's some sinew, there is some spine there. And it's not just seeing a police box, it's something about the way in which it keeps on breaking expectations that actually still always snares you. And you might like bits, you might not like other bits, but Doctor Who as a as a whole as body. An entity, yeah. yeah, Doctor Who is always actually greater than some of its parts. You can watch episodes you don't like very much, but it's still magical because it's Doctor Who, and there's no other show where I would love every episode because it's Doctor Who, in the same way that I do this one, if that makes any sense. It does, and that's brilliant, and that's a great place to thank end you. as well. So thanks very not much, not Rob. At all. That's okay, you're very welcome. 